go ahead and open up our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And uh, we've got to remember the theme, the purpose of this Gospel is found in chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples. But John specifically wrote about these in this gospel. Why? Verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is the point. This is the purpose of his gospel. Now, I want to bring to your attention this one thing that's going to be in our passage this morning. John and obviously Jesus were acutely aware that there was a counterfeit, spurious faith out there, that people would follow him for the wrong reasons. And we have that today. There is nothing new under the sun. But just because someone professes, just because someone goes to church, just because someone opens up their Bible and reads it, does not mean necessarily that they are born again, that they have true saving faith. And that's going to come out this morning in our passage. Let's stand together and read. Verses, let's just start with verse 13 through verse 25 of the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Passover, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers that overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's out of Psalm 69.9. Verse 18. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority to do these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, here we have over and over and over again Jesus exerting his deity. The, the right and the authority to go into the temple and to clean it up. The ability and his omniscience to understand man better than man understands himself to the point where he would never entrust himself with people who follow him just because he gives signs to them and performs miracles and wonders. So God, teach us this morning. Give us conviction. Stir our hearts towards the Scriptures. As Paul says, Father, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Once we understand the scriptures for what they are, once we see the Savior, the Lord of the word, the Lord of the scriptures, we need no more sign. 
Your word is sufficient. It is enough. It's the bedrock of our faith. By your grace, dear God, this is true. In Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen and amen. You may be seated. It's the Passover, okay? It's the Passover, the very reli- it's a very religious and spiritual time for Israel. The time when they remembered God's deliverance of their ancestors out of bondage to, in Egypt. So it's the time where they remember, they, remember they, they would sacrifice a lamb and they would, they would brush blood around the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over them so it wouldn't kill their firstborn. And that only happened to the Egyptians. Now it's quite fitting, and notice this, it's quite fitting that Jesus began his ministry with the Passover. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the one who would bring an end to the Passover because his sacrifice would absolutely satisfy his Father. And therefore, there would be no need for a Passover after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he would completely, fully, for all eternity, satisfy his Father's justice and his wrath towards our sin that he bore. But what did he find? What did he find when he walked into the temple? Here's one word, corruption. He found corruption. But before we get to that, before we get to our verse, I want to point out something to you. I think it's really marvelous. Not only did Jesus cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry, we see that he cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them record that after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the next thing Jesus did was cleanse the temple. That's three years after he does it here in John chapter 2. Turn with me to Mark for a moment, if you will. I want to show you something here. Mark chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, you've got the triumphal entry. But look at verse 15 through 18. Because somewhere during that week that he was crucified, that he would be arrested, okay, and crucified, at the very beginning of that week, he, he, he cleanses the temple. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. In other words, three years later, they didn't change. They kept doing the same thing. He cleansed it the first year of his ministry, but it didn't keep him from coming back and still doing it again and again. Three years later, they're doing the same thing. Sinners can't change their hearts became a business for them. Listen, religion becomes big business, doesn't it? Let's go on. Verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. 17, and he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? They were doing this, they were selling in the court of the Gentiles. And when you were doing that, you were really keeping them from taking place or taking part of what was going on in the temple. Now look at verse 18. Here's what I wanted to point out. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. Let's go back to John chapter 2. Okay, this is... What I'm doing is simply this. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he cleanses the temple. At the end of his ministry, before the cross, he cleanses the temple. At the very end, they sought how to destroy him. But notice in chapter 2 of John, at the beginning of his ministry, they didn't seek to destroy him. They simply say this, what authority do you have to do what you're doing? Here's the difference. 
Jesus is introducing himself. It's the beginning of his ministry. They don't yet quite understand who he is. They know of him, but they don't know much about him. But in a three-year time, when it came to the end, they understood who he said he was saying he was, who he said he was, and they wanted to destroy him because he was teaching that he was the son of God. You see the difference? By the time of Mark chapter 11, by the time he came into Israel, the triumphal entry, they knew exactly who he was claiming to be. So at that time, they said, now we've got to destroy this guy. Hence, this time in John, he says in verse 19, destroy this temple. It's prophetic, isn't it? And in three days, I will raise it up. Is God not in control? God not only does what he wants to do, he tells us ahead of time exactly to the T how he's going to do it. God is sovereign. God is in control. Nothing can get away of his providence. Amen? It might look that way to us. It might look that way to you. We look at our society. We might even look at our own lives and think everything is out of control. But, beloved, the word of God says God is in control from beginning to end. I think one reason why he makes it seem that he's to us that he's not in control, so we try to tr- we trust him more, depend on him more, to strengthen our faith. But God is in control. So here we are at the beginning of his ministry. He goes up to Jerusalem to observe the law according to the law, to worship the Passover as God commanded for Jews to worship. And what did he find? Look at verse 14. Look at that. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the tables. Now, people traveled for days or hours to get there. And so this made a lot of sense that, that they would, once they get there, they'd have to buy something for a sacrifice, some kind of animal. It wasn't that they were selling animals. It was where they were selling them that was the problem. You get that? They were using the temple. His problem was with those who had been selling the oxen in the temple. The money changers, they had to exchange money, okay, currency. And, and so they were doing it there in the court of the Gentiles, in the temple. One word that comes out is, what was convenient? What makes it the easiest for us? Beloved, worship was never intended to be convenient. Worship is never intended to be easy. Fast food. One-stop shopping for worshipers. I think that's what they were thinking. That may be a, a modern term today we would use back then, or they, they would buy into it. Oh, this makes it easier for them. It's convenient. Not only that, what one commentator wrote out, it must have been an advantage for the ecclesiastical authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, those in charge. It must have been an advantage for them to approve their animals. In other words, they got a corner on the market here. If we can have this in the temple, then we can USDA approved kind of a thing. This is going to be Pharisee approved, high priest approved, and we're going to kind of force them to buy the animals here in our temple and not over there down the street. So they would only guarantee the animals that they had or would be of higher prime quality 
for God must have been one of the things they were thinking. So in verse 15, we see Jesus is angry. He's angry. He drives him out of the temple. And I don't know how it is one man, Jesus. He, he puts these cords together and winds them up. And, and he starts probably whipping the rear end of the animals to get him out of there. Did he hit people? I don't know. But he was angry. This is no quaint, gentle little lamb, so to speak. He was that way under the cross, but at this moment, he got upset. This is a holy, righteous anger. A holy and righteous anger. Why? 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 Notice what he says in verse 16. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house. Let's hang on that for a minute. My father's house. Dwelling of God. This is a special place that was built, that God instructed Israel to build it for his presence. His pre- and you're treating it, using it for business? The temple was supposed to be sacred, set apart, holy, a place where God resided. And, and so the, the, look at the disciples' reaction they, they, when they saw Jesus doing this, cleaning out the temple, what, notice what came to their mind first, Scripture. Psalm 69, 11, 69, 9, verse 17. They remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. There are other things embedded in Psalm 69 that are referred to the Messiah. What do we learn here? We learn, first of all, Christ's zeal for purity and holiness, right? Oh, may the church grasp on to that passion for my own life, right? For our lives, for our church. They have polluted, they've corrupted the purity and the holiness and the loveliness of the temple and of worship. Listen, listen, when worship is a matter of convenience, when it's done around my schedule, when it's done on my terms, in a way that suits my preferences and my taste, then I'm no longer worshiping God, I'm worshiping myself. Swallow that one. What does it mean to be convenient? To be convenient means I don't have to sacrifice. You know, let's, let's make it easy. That's, that's where we're at in our country. That's where a lot of churches are today. We try to make worship convenient for everybody. Show me that in Scripture. I'll show you that we're supposed to be living sacrifices. Being a living sacrifice is not convenient living. Amen? Notice the use of the word business in the very end of verse 16. The term business, does that ring a bell? What about ministries today that send you a prayer cloth or anointing oil if you give them a free will offering? Hello, right? That's nothing but charlatans leading false worship. Charlatans, fakes, leading false worship. There were fakes leading worship when Jesus walked into the temple. 
Pharisees, chief priests that were charlatans. Right? Yes. They were in it for the buck. They were in it for money. I just heard recently this past week, Jesse Duplantis wants to get a $54 million plane. And he even said if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't walk in on a donkey. He'd get something expensive. Anybody hear that this last week? Something like that? Baloney. False teacher. False prophet, whatever you want to call him, he's false. And many, many like him. So notice the term business. And notice again the disciples' reaction in verse 17. Compare it to the Jews' reaction in verse 18. The disciples think of Old Testament Scripture. They're connecting his action with what the Messiah would do, right? But notice what the Jews do in verse 18. They ask, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? I like to put that into kind of modern lingo. What right do you have to turn over the table? Who do you think you are? That's what's going on here. That's how we would have said it today. Who do you think you are, you Jesus? The disciples are thinking, Messiah, better watch out, buddy. (laughs) And notice they didn't argue with what they were doing. Listen to this. I think they kind of knew what they were doing wasn't really right. And so they switched the argument around and attacked him, not what he was saying. Does that make sense? We do that sometimes, but a lot of people do that. They're saying the right thing, but instead of responding back to say, yeah, you're right, they said, who are you? We do that when we're threatened. We do that out of fear, don't we? That's exactly what they were doing. Who gave you the right? Who do you think you are? I want to stop here because it's going to develop from this point on. We learn from this this distinction between the Jews and the disciples in 17, 18, this about true saving faith. Listen, it's always satisfied with Scripture. True saving faith is always satisfied with Scripture. True saving faith will say, Scripture is sufficient. I don't need another sign. I don't need this, that, or this. Yes, God is providentially working. Yes, God answers prayer. But he's either going to answer it yes, no, or maybe, right? Okay? But a lot of times he'll tell me no, or he doesn't tell me no. I don't hear it. It just doesn't happen, okay? Sometimes it does, or a lot of times it's wait. A lot of times it's like, Jim, just focus on character building. (laughs) I'll take care of everything else. Oh, okay. That's tough. So what do I have to rely upon? Scripture. Scripture. So Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, one of the most saddest portions of Scripture I can think about in the New Testament is found in this, in this gospel. It's chapter 5. Turn there, verse 39 through 47. I think it's really, really sad. It's one of the saddest Scriptures in all of the New Testament. Listen to what he says. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to the religious elite, the leaders, the spiritual ones. And he says in verse 39, you search the scriptures. You search them. 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So why do we search the Scriptures? Why do we study? Why do we have Sunday school? Why do we have church? Why do we talk about Bible exposition? Why do you have devotions? Why, why, why? Because everywhere we are in the Word of God, it comes to Christ. It brings us to Him. In one way, shape, or form, His character, His person, His work. But He's saying to them, you search the Scriptures, but you never end up at me. You're still lost. Look at verse 40, and you are still yet unwilling to come to me. Wow. Searching the Scriptures over and over and over, and yet you are still unwilling to come to me. What an obstinate heart. That to me is the epitome of total depravity, the unwillingness to come to Christ, even though you're in the light of his word. And notice what he says, so that you may have life. Life is in Christ. 41, I do not receive glory from men. That's just sad. I do not receive glory from men. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. This is scathing. (laughs) He's looking at them and going, you don't have the love of God in you. How does he know that? Because you have not come to him. If you have not come to Christ, you do not love God. It's that simple. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Okay, let's pat each other on the back. Let's lift each other up. You receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Who was that? Jesus Christ. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, and in, in whom you have set your hope. This is scathing because they were hoping in Moses. They were hoping in his giving of the law. They were hoping in their obedience to the law that Moses gave. That's where their hope was. And therefore, they were unwilling to come to Christ. You know why people are unwilling to come to Christ? Because they're unwilling to allow their pride to be crushed i got to have something to do with my salvation. 1%. 0.01%. No, it's all of grace. Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So, when Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when he wrote those books, he was pointing to Christ. He was really writing about Christ. All those things in the first five books of the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ, the sacrificial system, the priests, everything. And that's why Jesus makes that statement. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's equating his words with Moses. He's putting himself up there. And of course, they would probably say, who do you think you are? But notice the sadness of this. Men who search the Scriptures, men who search the Old Testament Scriptures, and never ended up at the foot of the cross. To me, that's like the saddest place to be. 
the saddest place one could ever be. Let's go back to our main text, chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 19 to their question, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Notice that he does not satisfy them by just doing a sign right then and there. Later during the week, during the week, he will do some signs. We'll learn that later on in this passage. But right now, he gives them an answer, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, they're still thinking rock and mortar. They're sitting there looking at the temple going... Look at their answer. You said it took 46 years to build this temple. Now, if you know anything about the history of this time, it was not yet complete. So what I think is really being said here is that 46 years, and it is almost complete. We've got some years to go. In other words, it's going to take more than 46 years. And you think they're thinking rock and mortar. They're thinking the building in front of them. They're going, <laughs> you're going to crumble this, and in three days you're going to be able to put it back together again. They're confused, absolutely confused, completely confused. They they have no clue that Jesus is referring to his body. They have no clue that he is referring to the resurrection. Even his disciples at this point really were clueless. But then John interjects in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. temple of his body. I want to stop there for a second. There's the temple building, and Jesus just said what? John just said this, the temple of Christ's body. Well, later on in the New Testament, Paul's going to use the metaphor, that's the correct term, for the temple in reference to who? The believer. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I know it's not there embedded in the gospel, but Paul's going to use the same imagery to refer to us. A place where God dwells. God dwelt in a building called the temple. The, 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 the perfect place was the Son of God. He's in an echelon above, above all else. He's deity, okay? He is God, okay? So I don't want to compare what I'm getting ready to say to him, but in a different way, God indwells the believer through the Spirit, okay? Look at verse, start with verse 15 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Shall I go join a prostitute? I am in Christ, I'm joined to him, now shall I just take the same body and just go do what I want with it? And look at the extreme analogy he's using here. But again, he's talking to the church at Corinth. A people to whom he will say, examine yourselves to see if you really are of the faith. That's how he's going to end up, 2 Corinthians, the last letter there. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Here's his point, verse 18. Flee immorality. Stop it. Get rid of it. Get it out of here. Your body is not yours anymore. It's a place where the Spirit, where God indwells you. Flee. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Verse 19, Paul argues. You see where he's going. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have from God. He's a gift and that you are not your own. You are a slave of God. A slave of Christ. A bondservant. And so now Jesus Christ is Lord tells me how he wants me to use this body which he now owns. That's the imagery of slavery. But this slave owner loves me, gave his life for me. Right? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own anymore? For you have been bought with a price. And that price is the precious blood of the Lamb of God. He didn't purchase us with gold or silver. God didn't go get some, go in, intervene in a bunch of mines throughout his planet here called Earth and go in and dig out a bunch of gold and diamonds and say, I've accumulated all this wealth for myself and I'm going to purchase you with this. No. He said, son, go down there and die for them. Shed your blood for them. Give your life for them. The precious blood of the Lamb. Here's his conclusion. Therefore, in conclusion, here's the application. Glorify God in your body. Glorify him with your ears, with what you hear. Glorify him with your eyes, they're his, with what you see. How about your feet, where they take you? How about your mind and what you're reading? Or what you're watching on TV? That's the application of all this. What you're looking at on the internet or on a computer. We could go on and on and on. Beloved, if we are in Christ, we are no longer our own. We are his. We are called his temple. We are a place where he dwells. Therefore, in conclusion, the only reasonable thing to do is live for Christ. And to flee from any temptation of immorality. If I can't handle it, get rid of it. If it makes me stumble, get rid of it. If it makes me fall, get rid of it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Amen? So that's how Paul takes it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go back to our gospel again. Chapter 2. John gives an editorial comment, again, in 21 and 22. We just looked at 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead, John is now going fast forward for us and saying, I remember, okay, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples were beginning to put this together. What did they do? They believed the scriptures. And the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed the Old Testament scriptures, and they believed the very words that Jesus said. They believe these words, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Notice the equation. The word of God. There's a bug here just bugging me. Anyway. What's amazing here is how Christ unlocks the scriptures for us. Christ unlocks the scriptures. He's the cornerstone of the word of God. 
When one comes to Christ, they are given the mind of Christ, and scriptures slowly yet surely become unlocked, so to speak. We see this here, and we'll see it throughout the Gospel of John and the life of the disciples. In verse 17, we see it a little bit here, where they thought about Psalm 69, 9, zeal for his house will consume me. And then John, in an editorial comment, tells us that after the resurrection, they really saw what was happening, and they believed the Scriptures. Notice the belief in the Scriptures. Notice it's the bedrock of our trust, our faith, our belief. So when John writes this letter, what he has in mind is that we would believe the Word of God, part of which he was involved in pinning. Right? And yet we have people today over and over and over again going to crusades looking for another sign to prove that God is alive. And actually the ultimate sign has already been given. It's called the resurrection. Every other sign is subordinate to that one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why need another? Why? Why? Wow. So we see the beginning of faith is, on, is, is that they're believing the Scriptures and they slowly become unlocked to them. And we see that all that Jesus does is building up to the resurrection. And the resurrection is the final once-for-all sign and once you believe, it's the confirmation that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Once you embrace, believe, trust, then you're satisfied. I don't need another sign. He is who he is. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. I need go search no more for another sign. That's true saving faith. John continues now with the story of Jesus in Jerusalem, verses 23 through 25, as we begin to wrap this up. In verse 23, he says, Jesus did many signs. You see that? Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, it lasted about a week, many believed in his name. So immediately, back in verse 19 and 20, when the Jews said, give us a sign, he didn't give them one right then. But later on during that week, he started doing signs and wonders and miracles again. And John doesn't go out describing what they were. He just says it's what he was doing. But notice what he says in verse 23. Many believed in his name. But what was their belief based on? Next phrase, observing the signs which he was doing. You know, many people who are watching this right now in Jerusalem will be the very people to leave him in chapter 6. Because here's what they were thinking. Chapter 6, verse 15. Just listen to these words. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain. They wanted sign after sign after sign because they're thinking this Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and Israel is going to rule again. They're thinking an earthly rule and reign of Christ. But he had to come and suffer and die first, Isaiah 53. And so when he, they see these signs, they want reassurance after reassurance after reassurance. Listen to this. False faith continues to look for signs because false faith is never satisfied. Spurious faith 
a fake faith. Why do people keep looking for a sign? It just shows that they're really not trusting. That's what that is. Does that make sense? But if you really trust, Christ is sufficient. The Word of God, the sufficiency of Scriptures, it is the bedrock of my trust, my faith. And I see that John and his gospel is weaving this throughout, beginning in chapter 2. But notice verse 24 and 25. Jesus was acutely aware of these people who were following him for the signs because John says, but Jesus, in verse 24, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? For this reason, he knew all men. Verse 25, he knew what was in man. He knows the heart of man. Spurious, fake faith never fools God. I can fool myself, but I can never fool God. I could fool you, but I can never fool God. This is also in reference to Jesus' omniscience, a little exerting a little bit of deity here. He knows the heart of men. And so he did not trust them. He knew their unbelief. He, he knew that on the outside they're following him, but he knew that it was for another sign. And while they were always seeking after signs, showed that they really didn't trust him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Gentiles seek wisdom, but the Jews are always seeking after signs, which is a sign in of itself that I don't trust God. He knew all men. He knew their unbelief. Listen, listen, many believed because of signs, but they never associated him with the Scriptures. Did you get that? They believed him because of the signs only, but did not associate him with the Scriptures. That's false faith. To know Christ without the Scripture is not to know Christ at all. It's inconceivable. Spurious faith never is satisfied. True saving faith is satisfied. Look at 6.14. Go to 6.14. And we'll wrap this up. He's just fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves and fish. Obviously miraculous. Impossible for humans to do this. God did this. Verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Go to verse 30, and we read this. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? There it is, never satisfied. I just fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves of fishes. You want another one? I turned water into wine. I healed this guy. I healed that guy. You're always wanting a sign. What does that mean? You who have been following me for the signs, here's what it means. You don't believe that I am the Messiah. You don't have true, genuine, saving faith. Oh, you're following me, but that doesn't mean you follow me correctly. That doesn't mean you are born again. Exactly. You know what's going on here? Let me show you what John is doing here. 
Verses 23 to 25 will catapult us into the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is going to come out from that crowd who had been following because of the signs. And Nicodemus is going to say, here it is, verse 2 of chapter 3. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's setting this up for chapter 3 in Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus was going to be one of those people who was following along but did not have true saving faith. And Jesus is going to teach him, you must be born again. Amen? In other words, it's this. Are you saved? You better give God all the praise because it's a miracle. Because salvation is a change of heart. Salvation is about the indwelling of the Spirit. Salvation is about, salvation is all what God does. How he awakens the soul, how he awakens the heart. He, even, he makes us new creatures in Christ. A leopard cannot change its spots, but God can change a sinner into a saint. Just like the resurrection, the salvation of a sinner is the greatest miracle of them all. Amen? So when we share the gospel, remember that one truth. As we share the gospel, we should be praying that God would be performing miracles in the hearts of men, women, and children and bringing them to Christ so their eyes would be opened and they would receive, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why we are here in this neighborhood. And that's what the 16th is really all about. May God give us opportunities to share Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these wonderful words of life, and I pray, Lord God, that we know that it will not come back to you void, but it will produce exactly what you want. Stir our hearts towards the lost. Stir our hearts towards one another. Give us discernment as to what true saving faith is and all the other counterfeits that are out there. And Father, just because people know the language of Christianese or Christianity, it's because someone attends church now and then, God, we know that does not mean they have true saving faith. We know that scriptures is the bedrock of true saving faith. And we are satisfied with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the scriptures bear witness to. Father, thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for drawing us together as a body. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.